0: Alright, just a couple of announcements while everybody's, uh, finding their seat. That uh, just to remind everyone about the, uh, Thanksgiving dinner on the 24th of November, immediately following the morning, uh, service that Sunday morning. Uh, that's a good time for the church family to get together and to give thanks. So we'll, uh, we've done this in the past two or three times a year, try to get together and have a, uh, uh, church family dinner, and then a prayer time afterward, and Thanksgiving is certainly an appropriate time to do that, so um, so we'll do that on that particular Sunday. Barb, I'm glad you just got here. What is Graham's website? Divineviewpoint.com. Divine Slash S-A-N-E. Slash S-A-N-E. Divine viewpoint is saying. Okay, I wanted to announce that. Uh, is that on our website, on the DBM website? Is there a link to that? There should be. Let's make a note of that. Um, Graham Hunt, who has been transcribing uh, doctrinal material for decades, is in an Australia, and he's done a lot of tremendous uh, work that's been beneficial for many people. And um, he has a, a website with where he some of you and there's some people who are watching who utilize the, um, the transcripts within the Lagos uh, framework that, that uh, uh, art. Uh, Art Booz puts up, but Art is not always, uh, as up to date due to his responsibilities and everything. He may be a month or two or three behind, but you can get the transcripts. I learned of somebody yesterday who just pulls the transcripts right off of, uh, Graham's website, Divine Viewpoint slash, DivineViewpoint.com slash S-A-N-E. And he just pulls those off of there and immediately puts them into his Logos. And if you don't have Logos, you can just access all the transcripts there. And he has a lot of, a lot of other material. And those of you who are doing the Bible study methods class, he also has uh, another, uh, uh, some other material up there that gets you access to some basic books and materials and background Bible study things, encyclopedias, st- stuff like that that you can access. Jeff, did you have a comment? Well, they are. They're edited transcripts. He he um, he doesn't put every take every word. Um, right? Yeah, that's the way he's always done that. He's always sort of uh, abridged them, so to speak. So that things that are done, that's repetition from previous classes, is left out, and uh, and so it's not a word for word transcript of er- every class. It's somewhat abridged, but it's still uh, very very helpful uh, for a lot of folks so just wanted to make an announcement on that uh the only other announcement is that on the i believe it's on the 16th saturday the 16th we'll have our uh men's uh, prayer breakfast that particular saturday trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths they that wait upon the lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings as eagles they shall run and not grow weary Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that we should be uh, in fellowship. This is part of experiential sanctification, that when we sin, we're out of fellowship, but there needs to be cleansing of sin in order to be restored to fellowship this is accomplished through the simple confession of sin, and when we do that, we are restored to fellowship. But the issue isn't restoration to fellowship. The issue in the Christian life is maintaining fellowship, walking by the Holy Spirit, or abiding in Christ. It's not just getting back in a position where we can go forward. It's staying there and continuing to go forward. So uh, we always make sure that we have a A few moments of prayer before class so that people can make sure that they are indeed in proper relation to the Holy Spirit in order to make the time profitable in our study each evening. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And after a few moments, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so very grateful that we can be here this evening. We're thankful for your grace, thankful for your common grace that brings rain upon both the just and the unjust. We're thankful for the rain that we had today in the previous days and in the previous weeks as this has been significant for reducing the impact of the drought here in Texas. And Father, we pray that you would continue to provide for us in in these logistical matters. Father, we're thankful, too, that we have the freedom we have, even though there are those in this nation that seek to refrain, restrain our freedom, seek to restrain free speech, seek to restrain uh, those who would speak out against the uh, trends of the day and against things which are popular in our culture in order to recall us to a to a standard of absolute truth and absolute morality as articulated within your word. Father, we pray that we as believers in Christ believers in your word, that we might stand as lights in the midst of a dark, wicked, perverse generation, and that we might be consistent in our testimony and faithful to your word. And Father, tonight as we continue our study on your plan and purpose for Israel, we pray that you might guide and direct us in our thinking and help us understand that behind this, uh, these promises and these principles lie the important doctrine of your faithfulness to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. and Romans chapter 11, and we're going to uh, review briefly and then continue uh, going through this extremely significant uh, section and passage in Romans. The issue in this part of Romans in the first 10 verses is very simple. It is that despite... Israel's rejection of God, and this isn't something that's just related to the generation that rejected Jesus as Messiah, <clears throat> but as we'll see, this has been a a pattern throughout the history of the Jewish people going back to Abraham, and this was the, uh, the theme and the claim of the prophets, uh, the writing prophets that we know of, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, uh, others uh, in the uh, shorter, uh, minor prophets. Uh, consistently rebuked the kings, the leaders, and the people of Israel because they failed to listen to God. Uh, constantly challenging them with their disobedience, uh, their, their fact that they were constantly going after false gods and and goddesses and so this is not a unique claim to the new testament it's not a unique claim uh, of christians that somehow israel has rejected god there is a uh, a consistent pattern going all the way back to abraham and if we as we studied when in our study of genesis going through a number of the uh uh, uh <coughs> the history and biography of uh, jacob's sons we saw that this was part of the pattern of that generation that they were synthesizing, assimilating back into the pagan culture of, of Canaan. And as a result, this was one reason why God brought them out of Canaan, brought them to, uh, the, the situation in Egypt where they would be isolated from the surrounding culture and therefore protected. The Egyptians had a tremendous a bias and racial prejudice against the jews, and so they they basically uh, sequestered them off into into their own area, probably the original jewish ghetto um, and as a result of that, they maintained their purity as a result of that, they grew from uh, uh, just a uh, uh, little over a hundred people a uh, little less than one hundred people, about seventy or so, to a nation of between one uh, probably two to three million people that came out during the exodus and so this is how God established uh, the Jewish people in and this is the story of the book of exodus so Romans eleven is, begins with this emphasis that God has not. Rejected or replaced Israel. And I put that word replaced in there because this has been so often a theme in, in Christianity, especially during the um, early and late Middle Ages from uh, roughly about the third or fourth century A.D. uh, Replacement theology, which is based on an allegorical or a non-literal interpretation of the Old Testament, uh, it, it, replacement Theology came in and talked about how uh, Israel, the Jews, had rejected G- uh, Jesus as Messiah, so God permanently rejected them as his people. And yet this flies in the face of Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is one reason why in many Bible studies on Romans and in uh, in some commentaries even, these chapters are Virtually ignored or skipped over. This is sometimes referred to as the passed over part of, of Romans, because there are a, a number of people, especially within the replacement theology camp, that that they really can't handle it. In the way uh, you find many people who have trouble with scripture handling handling certain scriptures, is they just ignore them. They take out their, their mental scalpel and cut those verses or chapters or pages out of their Bible, and everything else fits their theological system. But then they hit something like this, if they believe in that, that the church is the new Israel and the church or Christianity replaced Israel in God's plan, then they just I- I ignore this whole section. So this is one of the strongest areas of Scripture that emphasizes the principle that God has not... Cast off his people, uh, whom he, whom he foreknew, and that Paul is saying in this section that even though uh, at the present time uh, Israel has been disobedient in rejecting Jesus as Messiah, uh, the disobedience of Israel is not complete. But there will be a time when that will end, and Israel uh, will come back to God, and there will be a full restoration of Israel and including a restoration, a national restoration to the land. We've seen that in this section of Romans, it's related to Romans, uh, uh, the basic argument of Romans dealing with the righteousness of God. Romans 9 deals with the principle that uh, the righteousness of God in terms of his rejection of national Israel. It is not that God rejected them permanently, but he rejects them in terms of di- divine judgment as clearly set forth in the uh, Torah in Leviticus chapter 26. Uh, God spells out a series, five stages or five series or cycles of disciplinary action culminating in the action of removing the Jewish people uh, from their land. This is what happened in 722 B.C. when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom it happened again in 586 BC when uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians defeated uh, the kingdom of Judah and destroyed the uh, first temple and it happened again in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed the second temple and uh, conquered Israel and the people were further scattered in what is known as the diaspora a greek word uh, for scattering so be- as we've seen many times in our study of this section when we deal with these hard passages related to God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and in this passage we're going to see uh, uh, an expression related to the blindness of Israel, that this is a God's uh, action in response to the initial reaction Uh, our decision on the part of individuals to reject God's plan. So first Pharaoh rejected God's plan, refused to let the Israelites go, and as a result, God Hardened, or We saw that that word actually means to strengthen his resolve in bringing about uh, his rejection of, the, of, of uh, Moses' plea to uh, release the Jews, the Israelites, from slavery. Uh, we've seen it again in terms of individuals, but first the individual sets his heart against God. This is the whole process in Romans 1. Romans 1 talks about the fact that God's revealed himself through the uh, nonverbal revelation of his creation, but people reject him and they worship the creature rather than the creator. What's the result? Three stages that we've studied, each stage indicated in Romans one uh, nineteen and following where it states, and then God gave them over to certain things, and then God gave them over a second time, and then God gave them over a third time. What God is doing is if we go into negative volition, if we reject God's word and we harden our heart against God, then He gives us our way, as it were. He lets us reap the consequences of our decision. And so He then allows that, that hardening, that blindness to take place because we're the ones in our volition, in our free will, who have set the course against God. So God is righteous in rejecting uh, Israel temporarily setting them aside because they rejected the offer of the Messiah. That's the argument in Romans 9. Romans 10 demonstrates that that rejection was based on Israel's corporate neglect of revelation that had been given to them. They were rejecting the revelation just, and the quotes there are all related to the Old Testament. Paul supports his case from citations from Deuteronomy that Paul was applying to that, that generation, even though that was a believing generation in the Old Testament. Romans 11 then answers the question, has God then permanently that's the nuance of the term has God permanently rejected his people no uh, not at all for he still has a national plan for Israel and he is going to be faithful to his promises to Abraham Isaac and Jacob and eventually he will fulfill those promises it goes back to the theme in Romans 1 16 where Paul says I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone to the Jew first see there's not an exclusion of the Jew there's an Offer of salvation to the Jew as well as the Gentile, and it's up to their volition whether or not they accept it or reject it. So, this is the uh, this is the background as we look at the chapter. Uh, the first part of the chapter emphasizes uh, the fact that God has not permanently rejected Israel. That's verses one through ten. Then, when we get into the second part of the chapter, in verses eleven to twenty-four. Uh, Paul expresses his assurance that the rejection by the majority of Jews of of God's grace is not going to last forever. There will be be a time when there will be a uh, turning to God among the Jewish people in light of Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 1. And then the third section gives us an insight into the future of that, uh, when that takes place, and the circumstances around that, and that's uh, and then it's brought to a conclusion in verses 33 uh, through 36. So in verse one, Paul raises the question: Has God cast away His people? Has God cast away His people? And he states it this way: He says, "I say then, has God cast away His people?" Certainly not. He forms the question in a way that presupposes a negative answer. And his answer is not just no. um, It's not at all. It's impossible. It's the strongest way you could express no in the uh, Greek language. It's meganoita, not at all, not in any way. And then he uses himself as an example, that as an Israelite himself, uh, he has not been co- uh, rejected uh, by God, and be the very fact that he, as a Jew, has been the recipient of God's grace and salvation means that God has not rejected the Jewish people. Uh, there's a couple of ways in which we we see this connection in terms of its relation to the previous uh, previous chapters. He says, first of all, uh, he uses the the uh, uh, structure lega un. Uh, which draws an inference from the previous uh, chapter where Paul says in verse 18, but I say, and then in Romans 10, 19, he, again he says, but I say. This is one of those things, those of you in the Bible study methods class, this is the kind of thing that you look for in terms of looking for patterns or repetition within the text in order to see connections between developments in terms of what the author says you can and, and this is one of those rare occasions when uh the english translations are consistent and accurate in translating the greek often in english translations as i pointed out before english translators will try to uh vary the english vocabulary for stylistic purposes um, this is one of those uh, uh Man-made rules that you can't use too many words too frequently within a certain context or you're just going to bore your reader and, and certain things like that, which might be uh, good for creative writing classes at your standard Marxist uh, liberal university, but that's not how the Holy Spirit writes. The Holy Spirit writes with a lot of repetition to drive home a point, but when you take these uh, silly little man-made uh, English Uh, creative writing rules and apply it to a translation, then what happens is The reader in the translation loses the point because the translator will take, you know, find, find one, the same word in the Greek used five times in two verses and they translate it a different way each time for stylistic variation and the reader misses the point that the Holy Spirit's trying to communicate. But this is one of those cases where they, they were consistent and they were accurate and so in English you can see that, that there's this but I say, but I say, and then verse one starts I say then showing a conclusion from what drawn from what he says in those uh those earlier verses so that shows that Romans 11 is integrally related uh to Romans chapter 10 and just as Romans 9 and Romans 10 emphasized uh, Israel here, not as individual Jews or individual or Jewish individual salvation or justification of the individual jew it 's talking about god 's plan for corporate ethnic Israel for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so that ties it together that 's important in understanding this passage that we 're talking about corporate ethnic Israel, and we're not talking specifically about individual justification. Second, we see that the references in 11.1 and 11.2, 11.1 says, I say then, has God cast away his people? And 11.2 says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, that this indicates again a corporate view of Israel. The, the, that God had a plan for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he elected them nationally. It's a corporate election that that applies through them. So often we hear that word election used in theological context, and we immediately jump to the uh, assumption that somehow John Calvin and the Calvinists were right and that God's up in heaven. Uh, saying eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and he's picking this one and rejecting the others. That is for, for salvation. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about God's choice of a particular people to accomplish his purposes in history and that it was going to be through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God would reveal himself to the human race, that they would uh, be the recipients of God's revelation, they would record his revelation, they would preserve his revelation and they would uh, keep that and pass it on for the benefit of the human race and that it was going to be through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the Savior would come, the one who would save the world from their sins. And this is a major theme all the way through the Old Testament prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and on into many of the minor prophets, Zechariah uh, specifically, as well as uh as well as Hosea and some of the others. So this is uh, indicates his corporate uh emphasis and then also Paul's use of 1 Kings uh 19:10 to 18 which comes up in verses th- uh, at the end of 2 and verses 3 and 4. This too pulls pulls together this same idea of corporate Israel. So when God when when the verse begins uh, Paul uses this verb, uh, apotheo, to, which is translated cast away. It's an aorist tense, which means it's talking about some undefined, indeterminate time in the past. It's just sort of summarizing it under under one basic, simple past tense a verb and the verb apotheo has the idea of pushing back, driving back, casting away, or rejecting. And I would re- I would think that the better translation here is "Has God rejected uh, <coughs> His people?" The, the sense here is: Is this a permanent rejection? And the answer is no, not at all. And His example that He gives, as I stated earlier, is His Himself. He says, "For I am an Israelite." of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin if the point is if God had permanently rejected the Jewish people from his grace then I wouldn't be saved <clears throat> and we all know that the that in the er, the, the early church was made up completely of those who were who were Jewish people, uh, four thousand saved on the day of Pentecost, five thousand saved later, and thousands and thousands of others uh, were saved during the first century that became Christians. And in fact, up until the time that the Emperor Constantine in, uh, established the Edict of Toleration, I think it was 315 A.D., which made Christianity the legal and only religion for the Roman Empire. Uh, even though there were theological differences between the Christian and the Jewish communities in areas where they could work together, in other words, taking care of the poor, taking care of the sick, providing for orphans and widows, things of that nature, they worked together. But once Christianity became the legal religion, and it was interesting that it 's about that same time that the church that the Christian church is becoming uh, uh, dominated by those who held to a non literal interpretation of scripture as a result of the influence of origin, and by the end of the fourth century uh, Augustine, by the time they get into this full blown um, uh, non literal or figurative or allegorical interpretation that 's when they start uh, this uh, laying the groundwork for christian antiSemitism, which is one of the most horrible things that ever happened. Uh, in human history, and it's a complete perversion of what the New Testament teaches, and it's a complete perversion of what the Bible teaches, but it came about because these early Christians by the fourth century quit interpreting the Bible on the basis of authorial intent and on the basis of a literal interpretation of Scripture, that is taking the words of Scripture in their normal context. Once they began to mystify it, once they began to bring, uh, uh, mysticism into their interpretation and subjectivity and allegory, then they lost that, that, that literal interpretation. But Paul clearly is using the term Israelite in a literal way, referring to those who were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that's how it's stated you'll run into the fact that today in a lot of ways uh, uh, especially among reformed Jews that are more egalitarian um, and others they like to talk about the patriarchs and the matriarchs we wouldn't want to leave the women out but the scripture always just emphasizes the male as the leader and so we prefer to stick with scriptural terminology and emphasize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because it is through them that the seed came. And that's that, that terminology that is emphasized all the way through Genesis. Philippians 3.5, as I mentioned last time, is another place where Paul emphasizes his Jewish heritage, that he's of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Uh, Paul uses that same word again in terms of repetition uh, in verse two. Whenever the Holy Spirit repeats Himself in the revelation of Scripture, we need to pay attention to it. God wants us to to recognize that there's a there's a significance and a connection there. And the answer to the question that he raised in verse one is stated didactically here and dogmatically. God has not rejected His people, whom He foreknew. Now there we get one of those great words that once again brings us into this whole issue on the relationship of the sovereignty of God to the uh, free will of man. And it is true that in God's sovereignty, he overrules and overrides human decisions, but God in his plan included the uh, dynamics of the chaos that free will would bring so that his plan is great enough and grand enough to include the chaos that comes from uh, the free will decisions of creatures. And we see that even in a natural realm from Genesis uh, 1 through 3, that, that when Adam sinned, it brought chaos into the geophysical, natural, biological world. And yet God had built enough flexibility into the DNA structure, into the laws of physics, into the uh, various other uh, natural laws and physical laws that it handled the chaos that came from sin. And so God is able to, to still accomplish His purposes even when human beings go astray from His decreed will. He still controls that. That is a much, I submit that that is a much greater grander and glorious view of the sovereignty and omnipotence of God than the God in a box that the Calvinists have who can't know anything unless he determined it, and so his omniscience is actually limited because in their view, God only knows what he has predetermined and only what he has predetermined is what he knows. God doesn't know the counterfactuals, as the philosophers put it. He doesn't know the things that could have been, would have been, should have been, or might have been, because they have such a limited view of God's omniscience. In fact, they think that that if you introduce that into God's character, you basically end up making God a slave to man, which just shows how perverted and corrupt their thinking actually is. They just turn everything upside down so they can have a rigid, mechanistic, predetermined, uh, and deterministic environment. So here God allows for the flexibility of negative volition within his plan and purpose. In the Old Testament, there's no mention that there's going to be a new entity called the church. There's no inclination that the Jewish people will reject the Messiah when he comes. Uh, there is simply the, the the clear statement that he's going to come and offer the kingdom to his people. But then they reject him. So what happens? God in his sovereignty has flexibility to introduce a new game plan. And uh, he always knew that. It was no surprise to God. But it is it just shows the flexibility that he has uh, within his plan to handle all of the um, Uh, corruption, and chaos that comes from human human volition. Now, when Paul states this in 11.2, and he says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, this is a direct quote that comes out of the Old Testament. I mean, this section in Romans is just loaded with references to the Old Testament because Paul is making sure that everyone who reads this, especially the Jewish people who read this, understand that what he is teaching is firmly grounded in what was predicted in the Old Testament by the prophets, by David in the Psalms, by Isaiah, by Jeremiah, by Ezekiel. They all predicted the worldwide dispersion of the Jewish people because that they would completely reject The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when he states this, he's actually quoting from Psalm 94. Psalm 94, verse 14, the psalmist, which is David, says, For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. So there's this permanent promise in the Old Testament that God will always be faithful to his promise to Abraham that that God is going to bless the world through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God is going to permanently establish uh, his people in the land, that there will be a time, as He's, uh, God told Moses, that they would be removed from the land, a time when they would be dispersed throughout all of the nations, and then at at the end of time they would be they would turn back to God and they would be restored to the land and God would establish his kingdom later on he makes it clear that this kingdom will be established under a king who is a descendant of David and that was articulated in the davidic covenant in 2nd Samuel 7 uh, through 14 so again David makes this clear God has not permanently rejected uh his his people so this is another one of those examples where uh modern theologians come around who have uh modern and medieval theologians come along and they reject uh this and they pervert the interpretation of this uh because they have an anti-israel anti-semitic bent and they want to uh, uh assert that the only people of god today Uh, is the church. Now, when we look back at this issue of foreknowledge, we have to understand what Peter says in 1 Peter 1-2. 1 Peter, actually Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, and 2 Peter are Jewish epistles. They are all written to a strongly Jewish Christian audience, and those uh, four epistles uh, emphasize a lot that comes from a Jewish, Jewish background. And so at the beginning of 1 Peter, he talks about the fact that his recipients are elect, that is, they're, they're the choice or the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And that, uh, as we've seen before, that God in his omniscience knows all the knowable, he knows all the possible, all the potential, all the woulda, coulda, shoulda, would, mighta, beens, and in light of all of that, he makes decisions not apart from his knowledge, but on the basis of his knowledge of what will take place. Uh, understanding this concept in Romans nine to eleven means that it's related back to uh, what he states in romans nine eleven that this election is according to the purpose of God, but it's not for individual salvation or individual justification it is he chose the jewish people and the descendants of abraham isaac and jacob for a national purpose a national destiny that would culminate in a kingdom established in the land under the rulership of a descendant of king david and so this is a clearly stated clearly defined here in this in this particular Uh, Passage, and so when we read in Romans eleven passages that talk about his people whom he foreknew, in verse uh, in verse two, and then in verse five, if you'll look down there, talks about the remnant according to the election of grace, and so we have to understand that this is uh, not related to individual justification, but 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 the corporate plan that God has. For, uh, for true Israel. Now, Romans 11.3 and 11.4 provide us with a uh, background uh, of what he's going to emphasize here in understanding what is going on with the Jewish people in this dispensation, in this era of the church age. Notice at the end of 11.2, we read, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he, that is Elijah, pleads with God against Israel. So we're going to go back into the Old Testament in order to uh, connect to this particular event. And he summarizes the event in two verses, quote, quoting from uh, the Old Testament, quoting, quoting from uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10 and uh, verse 14 in order to make his point here from 1 Kings 10, I excuse me, 1 Kings 19.10, 14, and 19. But we need to take a minute, as we usually do, to go back and just quickly run through these passages so that we understand what was going on. Uh, some of you were here when we went through 1 Kings. That's th- this whole episode here with Elijah is one of my favorite sections of of the uh, of the Old Testament and uh, and and just the impact that one man had on a nation, but we learned that even the some of the greatest of God's uh, servants in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament have great flaws. We all have sin natures. We all fail at times, and after his tremendous success and tremendous victory over the prophets of, of uh, Baal on Mount Carmel, immediately after that, as uh Elijah heard of the threats from uh, Jezebel the queen. Uh she sent out an order that he was wanted dead or alive, preferably dead, and uh she was going to make sure that he would die. That he immediately caved into his sin nature. He caved into fear, he caved into worry and anxiety. He forgot about God and he went on the run as a fugitive and so uh, 1 Corinthians 19 and fo- 1 and following tells that story so let's just review it to catch the context of 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 these uh uh whiny statements that uh that Paul quotes in Romans 11:3 and 4 so Ahab comes back from mount carmel Tells Jezebel about everything that happened there and everything that Elijah had done, and afterward that Elijah had executed all of Jezebel's favorite prophets that she had imported from the Phoenicians, uh, the prophets of Baal and the prophets, uh, all the false prophets, and, uh, he executed them all. He had their heads decapitated. Uh, which was the punishment under the Mosaic law. Some people have said, well, that wasn't his responsibility, but that's a failure to understand the role and responsibility of a prophet. In the Old Testament, he was God's representative to fulfill uh, God's plan and purpose, and this is what Elijah was doing, is he was fulfilling the purpose of the Mosaic law. And so he executed all of the false prophets uh, because this was their... uh, uh, this th- this was the penalty, the death penalty, stated in uh, the Torah. So he had all of them executed. And so as Jezebel is going to get her revenge, and in verse 2 she says, "...so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I don't make your life, Elijah, like one of them by tomorrow. We're going to send out the hit squads, and by noon tomorrow you're going to be dead." So then verse three says, when he saw, that's the King James based on the Masoretic text, when he saw that he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now here's a map. That shows you uh, where Beersheba is located down here in the south, uh, just on the edge of the Negev, which is the southern part of Israel, down uh, just uh, just on the north end of the wilderness of Zen, which is let me tell you a pretty barren place piece of real estate and He left from up here this, this circle circles the Carmel ridge, and he leaves from up here Mount Carmel and runs south as fast as he can to get away as far away as he can from jezebel remember her area of dominion is in the northern kingdom of israel her husband ahab is the king of the northern kingdom but they don't have any authority in the south so he heads not only into the southern kingdom of judah but as far to the other side of the kingdom of judah as he possibly can and um Let's go back and look at the verse. The Masoretic Text, this is one of those little things I've learned this last year that just helps me work my way through the Old Testament. Uh, Old Testament has textual problems just like the New Testament do, where you have different readings at times in different manuscripts because sometimes it's a clerical error, uh, sometimes it's an error of hearing, various reasons. When a copyist writes, he'll make a mistake. In the original Hebrew text, there were no vowels. The word for saw and the word for fear have the same consonants. You change the vowels, you change the word. Now the Masoretic text put the vowels in there so that it reads he saw. The Septuagint, which was a Greek translation made by the rabbis in about the second to third century BC, uh, the Septuagint the Vulgate, which is based on the Septuagint, which is the Latin translation of the Old Testament, the Syriac version, uh, translated as he was afraid. Now, I went to Dallas Seminary, and I didn't learn this till this last year. I went to Dallas Seminary. When I was at, at seminary, the Hebrew department at Dallas Seminary uh, was mostly in a, the camp that I didn't even realize this when I was there where a lot of the professors didn't really believe that there was much in terms of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And l- once I learned that, I looked back to some of the discussions and some things that were said, and suddenly it, it kind of made sense to me. I just didn't realize there was an issue going on in the background, but you'd hear things about about uh, that professors would say about some of the messianic psalms and you'd go, well, that just sounds funny, I, I, and you'd, I couldn't figure out how to correlate that, and it left me a little confused. And it wasn't until I was listening to a lecture this last year by Michael Rydelnick, where Mike was a couple of years behind me in seminary, and he interviewed all the professors in the Old Testament department. He started in 79, I believe, and he said, and it was basically the same faculty that was there when I was. Uh, Since I didn't graduate till 80, he said that not one old there there was only one Old Testament faculty member at that time that believed in in real messianic prophecy from the Old Testament. Now that impacted and was related to their view of textual criticism. And when he said this, I went, "Wait a minute, how how does that work?" And the view that we were taught at Dallas when I was a student was that you go with the reading in the Masoretic text. Now, so a lot of times the Masoretic text, which wasn't finalized until the 7th, 8th, 9th century A.D., uh, the Masoretes uh, changed the vowel points, which changed the words, in key Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament in order to remove the obvious interpretation of those passages as pointing to Jesus. And so that affects what's in the Masoretic text. And uh, Rydelnik's written an excellent book called The Messianic Hope, where he goes through detail after detail in showing how this happened historically and theologically. And it's fascinating uh, to come to understand that. But there's another uh, a very prominent uh, Israeli uh, scholar, Old Testament scholar, by the name of Emmanuel Tove who uh, has done a tremendous amount of work on textual criticism in the Old Testament, and his basic rule of thumb is is if the Septuagint agrees with the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Syriac or one of the other early Greek translations, then that trumps the Masoretic text. And that, boy, opens a whole new door of understanding in terms of uh, in terms of interpreting a lot of these messianic prophecies, because if you follow his rule, then you end up uh, straightening out a lot of these problems in some of these messianic prophecies that that uh, look like uh, are interpreted by some people today as not really messianic. so that would mean that and would make much more sense in verse three it 's not that when uh, I, uh, Elijah saw this it 's that when Elijah became afraid. Uh, He reacts to this threat by Jezebel in fear and runs for his life down to Beersheba, and he leaves his servant there. Now, here's a couple of pictures of Beersheba. It's a national park in Israel, and these are the remains. And as you can see from the background... It's fairly arid territory, uh, except for the green patch you see there, which is uh, irrigated, and there's a tremendous amount of irrigation going on in Israel. I think they use about uh, 70 or 80% of their wastewater goes through and gets completely uh, cleansed and is recycled and used in irrigation, which makes them extremely productive. Uh, and, they're, and they're exporting that technology to a lot of sub-Saharan countries, Uh, trying to help African countries learn how to uh, farm and implement some of these technological advances that have been developed by by modern Israel. So he heads into the wilderness about a day's journey, and he comes to a broom tree. I'll have a picture of that in a minute. doesn't provide a lot of shade, but then when you're in territory that looks like this, any little bush and any little spot of shade is very welcome, especially if it's uh, very hot. Uh, those who went with me on the first trip we took to Israel, uh, we, w- we went in late June, we went over into Jordan, and then when we came back down at, a, uh, Aqaba and a lot, we had to cross the, the border, and the, the fence line was about, probably, you walked a path that was about size of half of this room, and you t- had two cyclone fences down each side, and you had about a 200 yards to walk from, one border checkpoint to the other one and you had to pull your little, you know, rollerboard behind you and carry your luggage and whatever. And we were walking, uh, west and there was a Sherako wind coming off of the Judean desert right into our face. The temperature was 117 in the shade and it was like walking into a hairdryer. I frequently say the temperature was 117 with a wind chill of 135. It would wither you in place. So uh, Elijah was looking for any place where he could rest. And verse 5 tells us that an angel came and touched him, told him to rise up and eat. Now this is a broom tree. doesn't give you a whole lot of shade, but it's what you get in the midst of the desert. So the angel took care of principle here is, again, we see God's faithfulness. The point that Paul makes all through Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that God is faithful to his promises to Israel. And what we can take from that is God is faithful to each of us in terms of his promises. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is always going to uh, strengthen us, sustain us, and take care of us, just as he did Elijah, even though Elijah is running in fear and he's forgetting to depend upon God, God doesn't forsake Elijah. You can blow that up even larger, that even though Israel is in disobedience, according to Romans 11, nevertheless, God is still watching over them. This is the same thing that was seen in the Old Testament book of Esther, that when the Jews are in the Diaspora, and there's this huge anti-Semitic plot by uh, Haman, who's the favorite of King Ahasuerus, that nevertheless, even though God's name's not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther at all, God is the one that's really the the hidden force protecting Israel behind the scenes. And so that's the lesson here, that whatever our condition is, God doesn't forsake us Even though we forsake him, and so the angel takes care of Elijah in the wilderness, provides food and drink for him, and he goes on for forty days and forty nights on down into Sinai, Uh, and so there's a parallel drawn there with him and Moses. But that—that's all I'm going to do here. Is a map of Sinai. The traditional site of Sinai is way in the south, uh, down here at the base at the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. That's probably not where it is. We don't know exactly. There's three or four candidates, but the Sinai of of, of Exodus is probably located somewhere in this area. Uh, and you can figure that out because of the ways in which the scripture says it took so many days to walk to so many locations, and so it fits better to have them uh have Sinai located. Uh, the real Sinai located somewhere in this area. Some have even placed it up into the wilderness of Zen, but probably not, probably located somewhere uh, in this vicinity. So when he gets there, he goes into a cave, and he spends the night there, and the next morning the Lord comes to him. Uh, the angel of the Lord more than likely comes and, and speaks to him under the uh, title of the word of the Lord. In Hebrew, the Memra, but when we get into the New Testament, this is the Logos. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is who John referred to in John 1 uh, one through 3. In the beginning was the Logos. The Hebrew for Logos is Memra. The word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I brought this up because this is one of my favorite passages because it's misused a lot by a lot of people. A lot of people think this is a divine guidance passage that... Um, in a minute we'll come to the verse where God isn't in the whirlwind, God isn't in the uh, earthquake, God is in the still small voice. And they say, see, you need to pull away from everything. And you need to get where you can listen to God. And God will speak to you in that still small voice. And, and this is just pure mystical garbage. This isn't a divine guidance passage. Elijah isn't trying to figure out what God's will is. He's trying to run away from God's will. And God isn't giving him direction as to what his will should be. He's, he's gonna give him a, an audio-visual demonstration of that, that, of God's incomprehensibility to, to drive home the point that Elijah, who had a preconceived notion of how he would have this victorious, uh, uh, uh this This victorious response from Ahab, and there would be this huge revival in Israel as a result of Mount Carmel that that wasn 't what was going to happen, and afterwards he 's just crestfallen because he 's confused his plan with god 's plan, and God is going to demonstrate that no you can 't second guess my plan uh, what you think i 'm doing is probably not what i 'm doing unless i 've told you what i 'm doing and so and this is what takes place, and so he ask Elijah. He doesn't say, Where are you going? That's a divine guidance passage. He says, What are you doing here? And Elijah says, and he's going to repeat this in verse 14. Repetition again is a key in understanding the points God's driving home in Scripture. So Elijah says, "Well, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. You know, I've done him, I've done everything I could do. I, I have been faithful and obedient for years. I I was out in uh, with the widow of Zarephath and before that I was on the uh, Brook Cherith and, and and I've been living in isolation. I've done everything God said to do." Uh, And the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They tore down your altars. They're really not responsive. And they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I'm the only one left. Woe is me. There's nobody left who sees the truth. There's nobody left who understands reality. There's nobody left but me. I'm the only one who knows the truth. And they're all after me to take my life. Woe is me. He's just having his own little pity party uh, down on Sinai. And so God tells him, okay, I've got to teach you a little lesson here. Stand out on the mountain uh, before the Lord. And then the Lord passed by. First of all, there's a great strong wind, like a tornado that tore into the mountains, broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. What God is teaching is that there are his effects, and he sometimes operates in great dramatic ways, and other times not in great dramatic ways. You can't second guess God. So the second example is, um, he says, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake caused by God, but the Lord isn't in the earthquake. And after that, this is where we get to our fun little verse in verse 12, after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, and this is how it's translated in so many versions, a still, small voice. The concept of a voice communicates revelation, but that's not in the text. That's not in the original. Uh, The New American Standard translates it, uh, a sound of gentle blowing. The New English Translation uh, translates it, there's a soft whisper. Uh, The ESV says the sound of a low whisper. The NIV says the sound of a gentle whisper. Literal translation of the Hebrew says there was a sound of a small, thin, nothing. You know, it doesn't say anything more than that. It it, it doesn't use the word voice. Just the, the, it basically, the 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 word in the Hebrew Aramaic uh, lexicon of the Old Testament is translates the word as a calm, vibrant silence. See, there's all this, this noise, a storm, the earthquake, the fire, all of these huge effects, and then there's nothing. There's just the sound of silence. Deep, profound silence. There's no communication going on here at all. God's not giving him directive will. It's just silence. And the point that, that, that God is making here to Elijah is, you can't second guess what I'm going to do sometimes I act in big overt ways like I did on Mount Carmel and I come down and I you know I, I act in this this huge thunderbolt that just uh, just destroys the altar and just evaporates everything that's that's on the altar but at other times I'm working in silence and you don't see what I'm doing and and you can't second guess it in verse thirteen uh, <clears throat> 14, um, again, God asks, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah says, well, I, I, I'm, alone, I'm the only one left alone. He hadn't really gotten the point yet. And then in verse 18, we'll skip the couple, next couple of verses, God says to Elijah, quit having a pity party that you're the only one. God says, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel All whose knees have not bowed to Baal. So what we see here is the example of the northern kingdom of Israel that's gone into complete apostasy. They have rejected the Torah, they've rejected God, they have been uh, completely immersed in the pagan religions of the Asherah and the Baalim, and they're worshiping the idols and they're involved in all the fertility worship and everything that went with it, and they've completely rejected God. But there's 7,000 in the northern kingdom who are still true to the Torah. They're still true to the word of God, and they are still worshiping God and God alone, even though it's a time of tremendous persecution. It's that group of 7,000 that is referred to in some places technically as the remnant, and that is a key term that comes out of uh, verse 5 in Romans eleven five in the translation. Even so then at this present time, Paul says, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, we have to understand what this concept of remnant is. This is an important term, and one of the reasons that this is important is because I have heard uh, some theologians and some pastors who are not well studied in the word, apparently, and some people uh, wrongly apply the concept of remnant to the church but there's no scriptural basis for doing that. The term remnant is exclusively used of the core group of of true believers in Israel among the Jews. It is never, ever used of the church. It's only used twice in the New Testament and both times in this passage. Once in Romans 9... And once here in Romans 11, both in reference to the Jewish remnant. There's no such thing as a Christian remnant. Use of that terminology betrays an influence. I'm not saying the people who use it. Or replacement theology, but that's what's lurking in the background. Uh, there's certain terms that are restricted to Christianity and the church, and there are certain terms that are restricted to literal Israel and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and remnant is an Israelite term. It's a Jewish term to refer to the core group that is true Israel, that are those who have not rejected God, those who have stayed true to uh, the Old Testament and have responded to whatever revelation God has given, whether it's Old Testament or whether it's the revelation given in terms of, of Jesus. In terms of terminology, there's basically four words. The first two are Hebrew, the second two are Greek. The first word is yater, uh, which means the remainder. That's basically the idea in the remnant is that which is left over, that which remains. Uh, and sharit uh, also is translated remnant and means the same thing. Uh, these words in the Old Testament uh, Septuagint are translated with the words that show up in, in Romans 9 and in Romans 11. Romans 9 uses the word hupalema, and Romans, uh, uh, Romans 11, uh, 5 uses the word lema. Uh, lama is the root, uh, hupa is just, uh, prefixed with a, uh, <coughs> preposition, both referring to, to the remnant. Now, this is an important term. I want to go through several verses. We're about out of time, so I'm going to go ahead and close. But this, we'll come back next time and go through the finally get there. I thought I would get there last week, but as you can see, there's a lot more to cover. It takes a little time to get here. But you now understand the conclusion, and we're going to go back and see how the term remnant is used in the Old Testament. It's used in non-specific ways. It's used to refer at times to the Canaanites that were left over who survived, um, who survived the conquest. Those were the ones who remained uh, alive, those who survived. So sometimes the word remnant simply has that uh, idea of survivor. Sometimes it's applied to the Jews who survived the Assyrian assault, the Jews who survived the Babylonian assault. They're referred to as the remnant. There's no special technical sense there. It has no spiritual overtones. They're just the, the ones who survived. Then it's used in some key passages to refer to a subset of of Israelites. As Paul says in Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. So there's a subset that are faithful to God, the remainder are unfaithful. That's the analogy that lies behind Romans 11. And so to understand Romans 11, we have to understand the doctrine of the remnant, and we'll come back to that next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and for the fact that your grace has been manifested Uh, throughout all of history to all of humanity, non-verbally in the creation, verbally through your word. And Father, we're thankful that uh, you chose uh, Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the great purpose that they fulfilled in history to uh, be the custodian of your revelation and your word and your Savior. And we're thankful that we have a salvation based on grace through faith and not based on works. And we pray that you would help us to understand these things that we may come to a greater appreciation of your faithfulness to your word, your faithfulness to your promises, and that we may rest and relax in your uh, promises and your faithfulness no matter what happens around us, no matter what the circumstances may be, no matter how fearful and uncertain things may be, we can always trust in you because we don't see your plan as you see it. We just have to trust in you and walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.